welcome to another McLaren Fans Podcast. Um, as you will probably have figured out already, there's been no race this week, so you're probably wondering why we're here. Well, we've got a very special guest with us today. Um, it's uh, Matt Bishop, somebody that we've all met at some time. Uh, I think me and Sarah have met him at McLaren on more than one occasions. Uh, just to give you a bit of a, a quick rundown of... Uh, Matt's sort of CV, he was the former editor of uh, Formula One magazine. He was McLaren Communications Director from 2007 to 2017. He then 2008, joined... 2008, to be fair. I started on the 1st of July. Sorry, right. 1st of January, 1st of January, 1st of January. Right, okay. Um, yeah, somebody needs to update your Wikipedia then. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, you can you can do it. I better not do it, otherwise somebody will say I'm updating my Wikipedia. You, you have a go. It's I started on the first of January, twenty oh eight. Right, I'll take that as an action. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, then he joined the W Series leadership team, uh, twenty eighteen to twenty twenty, and was head of communications at Aston and Martin more recently, up until last season. Um, apparently, according to Wikipedia, once again, you are almost a London bus driver. That, <laughs> astonishingly, is true. Yeah. Um, and most of you will know Matt from uh, his On This Day tweets that he does about F1 on Twitter. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Matt Bishop, thanks for joining us, Matt. Well, thank you for having me. It's no problem at all. Um, and as usual, we're joined by Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. And uh, Andy Robinson. Hi, Andy. Hello, all. And I didn't nearly become a bus driver. <laughs> but would you like to drive time. the tube? <laughs> There's still time for all of you to become a bus driver. <laughs> right. So let's kick off then. So, um, Sarah, I believe you've got. Yeah. Yeah. So. So as as we've alluded to already, Matt, you were um, you were editor of F1 Racing Magazine. Um, and that was at a time when I believe the circulation numbers were massive, you know, in the millions, weren't they? Not like nowadays where we all read things digitally. I mean, yes, it, that, you're quite right. Uh, and it wasn't anything to do with my editorship. It was just because <laughs> digital didn't exist. Exactly so, that. You know, if you wanted to find out about Formula One, you could buy a newspaper and there might be an article in there, but there might not. You could buy Autosport or Motoring News, as which became Motorsport News every week. But then you'd have to read about, you know, rallying and hill climbs and everything else. Um, or you'd watch Murray Walker. Uh, but that was kind of it. So if you can imagine, that was the, uh, the media landscape on which we launched F1 Racing as the very first really... I would say, sorry to say, but professionally produced by a major um, publishing house, monthly specialist Formula One magazine. And we found that when we pushed the door, it sprung open. People wanted to buy it. And when I joined, I joined in December 1996. Uh, and it had just been launched, had done a few issues, kind of pilot issues and a couple of other issues with a skeleton staff from autosport but i was the first kind of bespoke headhunted editor and it was on sale in one language english in one country the uk and by the time i left which was at the very end of 
2007 to join McLaren on the 1st of January 2008, it was on sale in 34 languages in 110 countries. Wow. And it was selling in the millions, yes. So it was a very successful thing to be involved with, hugely exciting. I've always been incredibly lucky, and I was very lucky to be asked to edit it. And because of its influence and its reach and its power, and because there was no digital web alternative, at least at the beginning anyway, obviously I I got to know everybody. I got to know all the drivers, and I even got to know Ron Dennis, who finally then offered me a job, which is how I happen to be sitting on your podcast, as I well know. <laughs> now, I, un- I understand you really impressed Ron, or probably annoyed him a little bit, um, around the time when you broke the story regarding the MP412 and the independent braking and the photos of that. Could you perhaps tell us about that story and how you, you met Ron in those circumstances and how it was? Well, I already knew Ron quite well. Uh, I, I started, as I say, in 1996. And I soon, for, for my sins, hit it off with Ron. You, you know, he wasn't really, or isn't really, um, very into the media, Ron. But he, for some reason, decided I was a good thing, or I was a smart lad, or something like that. Or maybe I had even less hair than he did, so he was happy with that. <laughs> But anyway, um, in fact, once I'll just tell you quickly, once me and him and Eddie Jordan had uh, a conversation about how best to deal with baldness. And Ron said, uh, Ron said, Eddie, I mean, at least Matt and I do the honest thing. I mean, he gets rid of it. I comb it back and you st- stick a stupid wig on there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so that, that conversation oh, brilliant, uh, went brilliant. on for some time. But anyway, um, where was it? Oh, yes. So I got to know Ron quite well. And it became from about 2000 on, I think, uh, we used to have lunch in the McLaren motorhome, not at every race by any means, but from time to time and dinner in hotels as well. Luckily, always paid for by him because he chose extremely good wine. And um, but I happily drank it. And I remember in Manucor in 2001 he first offered me a job but it wasn't the right job uh, and, and so I didn't take it but it, I was flattered and I was interested and we continued to um, you know I inf- interviewed him obviously frequently and asked him questions but also had a, a, an element of socializing with him so then um, so that that happened but then in in what had already that was surprising because prior to that as you say uh, we had had a bit of a problem because we found out, Darren Heath, the photographer at F1 Racing, and I found out that, and I won't go into the whole detail of it, but we found out that um, really through some clever sleuthing of Darren's, uh, we found out that um, the McLaren was running a secondary brake pedal in order to trim the understeer out of the car. And uh, that we found out at the Austrian Grand Prix of 1997 and that being the case we thought how can we prove this it wasn't a cheat by the way it was completely legal but uh, I I thought um, how we need to have a photograph we need to have some kind of proof so we did some more sleuthing and I managed to find out that the 
pedal was the control. So Darren found that it existed, and I found how it was operated, which was by a second brake pedal. And therefore, I said to Darren, we're going to have to try and get a shot inside the McLaren footwell. Almost impossible, obviously. Although things were a bit easier in those days, but still almost impossible. But we were assisted by the unreliability of the Mercedes-Benz engine. Because at the next race, which was at Nürburgring, you will recall, uh, Hakenham was leading and Coulthard was second, first and second, in Germany with all the Mercedes big brass sitting there, uh, ready to celebrate their triumphant success. And then not one, but two, both of them broke down on the start-finish straight. So huge embarrassment for Mercedes-Benz, huge frustration for everyone at McLaren, and great opportunity for us. Because I then rang Darren, who'd blagged, funny enough, uh, to mention Eddie Jordan again, who'd mentioned we'd blagged a Jordan paddock bike. Ron and Eddie always had a love-hate relationship. And so Eddie happily gave us a paddock bike so that Ron, uh, so that Darren would be able to zip to whatever corner. So I rang him and I said, look, they've both broken down, not one but two. They've both broken down at the end of the start-finish straight. Get down there. So off he zoomed down on his... Jordan paddock bike, got there, found that David Coulthard had put the steering wheel back in so he couldn't get his camera into the cockpit and into the footwell. But in his frustration, Hakkinen had hurled the steering wheel away from the car, which he never got fined for, by the way. Ooh. Bit late now, really. To yeah. <laughs> <laughs> late now. But anyway, um, so uh, Darren was able to get his lens right down into the footwell, take the pictures... And of course, it wasn't digital. It was film, Fuji Velvia. So we didn't get the results until Lund back in London, when Darren flew, flew home, went to Metro Processing in Clerkenwell and waited for the pictures to be developed. I was in the office uh, at, at, in Teddington, the F1 racing office at the Haymarket uh, building in Teddington. And then Darren rang me and he said, I've got one absolutely perfect picture. And it's you could see accelerator pedal, pedal, brake pedal, secondary brake pedal. And we published it and we kept it secret until we published it, even with monthly lead times. And it caused a stir. It caused a furore. And it was the making of Darren as a photographer. And it was really the making of F1 Racing as not just a nice magazine with pretty pictures that comes out once a month, but something that you can't miss. And that even as a monthly is going to break stories that newspapers and weeklies will fail to get. And it was a great story. And it turned out to be 100% accurate. And Ron went mad. The next race we saw him was Hereth, uh, which, of course, was famous. Hereth 97 was famous in other ways. It was the last race of the year. And it was when Michael Schumacher attempted uh, his professional foul on Jacques Villeneuve's Williams and failed. And therefore, Williams won the title and so did Jack. But Prior to that, Ron gave Darren and me a proper dressing down in the paddock. And at that point, if you'd said to me, I'm going to work for McLaren in the future, I'd have said, you must be completely crazy because uh, because I didn't. But as I said, because I, I couldn't believe it. But as I said, you know, in the years after that, somehow Ron began to forgive me or like me or something. And then, yes, he did employ me. Uh, so there you are. That's the story of the brake pedal. Thanks. Excellent, excellent. Um, obviously, uh, 
you know, you've been working at McLaren, there's been some highs and lows when you were there. Um, one of the, I think for me, and probably Sarah as well, one of the most sort of uh, memorable times as fans that we've been there, and, you know, you've, you've always been good to us as fans. I remember sitting in that boardroom and um, you you talking to us, and telling us about what it was like to be in that McLaren garage in 2008 when Lewis won that championship. So I'm just wondering if just for, for the people listening out there and, and just for me and Sarah and, uh, and Andy as well, you can go through that again because that is a great story. Give the fans some sort of insight to what it's like to be part of McLaren when they win a championship. It remains the most professionally emotional high point of my career, and I'd be very surprised if it will ever be topped. So a little bit of background. Obviously, most, but perhaps not everybody listening to this or watching this, will know that the year before, 2007, was McLaren's Annus Horribilis, terrible, horrible year, where the um, spy scandal, Spygate, as it became known, and the team was chucked out of the Constructors' Championship when it had scored more points than any other team and would therefore have won it, and was fined 100 million US dollars. I wasn't there at the time. I was a journalist still working F1 Racing in 2007. But in the autumn of 2007, Ron Dennis said to me, look, you've got to come and join me this time. I'm in the really in the SH1T with uh, the FIA and Ferrari and all this. I need you to come and be my strategic comms director. So in the end, I... I, I I I did do that and I agreed. And I started on the 1st of January, 2008. And you have to remember that when I arrived there, the the atmosphere was one of completely defensive pessimism. Everybody there, whether they'd been there for a year or 20 years, had been through the worst months of their life. They thought the team was going to die. It wasn't impossible that it might. If McLaren had been banned from the 2008 championship, then it would have died, couldn't have survived that. It just about survived a $100 million fine. Anyway, so into the McLaren Technology Centre I walked, and everyone was defensively pessimistic, and that rubbed off on me, even though I'd only just joined there. Obviously, I was fully aware of what had happened before. Indeed, I'd reported on it. And then we went to Australia for the first race of the year, and we won. Lewis Hamilton won. And you just have to remember what an extraordinary shot in the arm for everybody that was. You know, everyone's chin was on the deck, and we went down there, and we won, and we beat the old enemy, Ferrari. And that lifted our spirits. Then, obviously, Ferrari won a few races. Then we got to Monaco and we won again. Arguably still one of the greatest drives, I think, in um, uh, Lewis's Pantheon. Probably Silverstone later that year was also another one. So we were winning these races. Now everybody knows, obviously I've given that background, but everybody knows that we got to Interlagos leading the World Championship and Lewis 
didn't qualify mega well and wasn't figuring mega well in the race. Whereas the rival for the championship, Felipe Massa in Ferrari, was on the pole and leading. And I think you also have to remember here, think about Felipe for a moment, who is someone I respect and like. You know, he was in a Ferrari. I know you're McLaren fans, but Ferrari is still Ferrari. Ferrari is, you know, the prestigious team. He was racing in his home country, Brazil, in his home city, Sao Paulo. Watching was his dad, his family, his mates, everyone. He stuck it on the pole. He was leading. And Lewis was in P6. To win, he had to be P5. So Ferrari, nervily confident, we've done it. And Felipe, knowing he'd done absolutely everything he could, reeling off the laps in the lead, if I hold this together, I'm going to be champion in a Ferrari at home. Can't get much better than that, can it? Anyway, in the last few laps, you'll recall that Lewis was P6 and had to be P5. Sebastian Vettel was P5 in the Toro Rosso. And by rights, a McLaren in 2007 should have been able to outrun a Toro Rosso in in that time. But for some reason, on the track, in the damp, in the slippy conditions, and obviously Seb then as now a great driver, he couldn't. And Lewis kept lunging uh, at Seb at different corners and closing on him, but he just couldn't make the pass stick. And obviously racing cars, Formula One cars were incredibly loud in those days. So I was in the garage, just staring at the monitors with our colleagues, mechanics, engineers, other comms and marketing people, just staring at the monitors, trying desperately not to believe what we saw unfolding in front of us, which was that after everything, after the despair of the previous year, after the defensive pessimism with which we'd approached this year, after all the highs, after having led the championship, it looked like it was going to slip away, and not just slip away, but slip away to the old enemy, Ferrari. And then you know what happened. What happened was on the last corner of the last lap of the last race of the year. We all saw at the same time in the garage, we all saw it simultaneously. We saw that it wasn't Vettel that Lewis was going to pass to be fifth. It was Glock that Vettel and Hamilton were both going to pass together and Lewis would be fifth. And that happened so late that Massa was already celebrating his world championship. And his dad, you've probably seen the YouTube footage, was celebrating, crying with happiness because his boy had won the world championship Ferrari in his city. But 15, 20 seconds behind, history was changing, all that. And we saw it. And the moment we saw it, we just sprinted straight out of the garage. I remember the monitors nearly flying off their pedestals as we (laughs) ran past them. Straight out across the pit wall, climbed the, uh, the, the fence in order to lean across and see Lewis pass in P5. And I find it hard to com- 
to talk about really even these all these years later 16 years later without choking because it was such an extraordinarily emotional experience and some of the commentators you know didn't see it at that time but we saw it and we saw he'd done it i'll just say one more thing about it which is that afterwards you know we were absolutely over the moon can't believe how you know i've never hugged people so hard just seeing old colleagues and just come you know here come here mate big hug wonderful and then seeing Lewis when he'd obviously gone through, um, he, he was on the podium, but he's gone through the way in and all the rest of it. And then seeing him and Ron hugging him and Ron saying, Matt, he's yours. Just do as much media stuff as you possibly want. That's what matters now. Because obviously it was the last race of the year. There's no point doing a technical debrief with the engineers. So we did. And the Interlagos paddock was incredibly congested and really difficult to you know, get all the... TV crews lined up and the journalists lined up and everybody wanted a bit of Lewis, but we managed it. And I remember one time, uh, and it was one particular time when there was about six TV crews crowding around Lewis. And then I saw a little figure in red kind of creeping and squeezing through the crowds and putting his hand through saying, well done, Lewis, well done. It was Felipe. Proper sportsmanship, eh? Proper sportsmanship. An extraordinary day, an amazing day that I will never forget as long as I live. I have to tell you, as you're talking, Matt, I feel like the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up like I'm having a little shiver. And I've heard you tell that story before. Um, And one thing I would say is, Matt, you are an amazing storyteller. I know it's all true. I know it's factual. I know that none of this is is fictional, but you are you are an amazing storyteller, and thank you for sharing that with us. I know any McLaren fans listening to that are going to feel like we feel right now. So thank you very much. The only thing is, it ha- hasn't happened recently to McLaren people, and I don't want to make you cry more. <laughs> yeah, but we it we will. still that believe believe in McLaren. <laughs> the thing we have is yeah. hope. Yes, we you have remember- hope. It yep. was back in those days when I was um, uh, working there that we coined the whole Believe in McLaren, hashtag yes. Believe in McLaren. Yes. And I think it was a very good thing that uh, around which McLaren fans could uh, congregate and con- constellate. And I know all of you uh, embraced it, Believe in McLaren. It's a long belief. I, I personally hope it does come right. Obviously, this year hasn't started well. Anyway, that's not for me to say. Yeah. We, uh, we keep the faith and... Uh... And like you say, that hashtag's being used a bit more often again lately. So <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah we've got to. Um, as you're talking of hashtags, Matt, um, you've had a you, you're on this day tweets are brilliant. I love them. Um, they're insightful. They 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 bring up stuff that I've never seen in my life ever. And you've got the knowledge that I don't have, which is I love it. But you also get a lot of the negative side of Twitter. And I have a clear policy on my Twitter. I block. And anyone says anything slightly negative, block and they're done. Uh, as a professional, though, you don't get the same amount of joy, I guess, and be able to block everyone. Um, how do you handle that negativity that comes at you from Twitter? Well, I get more negative, negativity than most, I suppose, because I'm a gay man. And um, it's 
upsetting and sad and ludicrous and ridiculous that in 2023 that should still be a factor but the, the fact is it is a factor and you know I I try to be polite on Twitter myself I mean I, I struggled with Boris Johnson I have to say I struggled with him but he's a special case yeah. but apart from him I try to be polite and uh, actually Andy if somebody is completely gratuitously rude so I mean, I had one where I did a um, a tweet saying, on this day, Sterling Moss won the Monaco Grand Prix in a Maserati 250F. And I told a little story about it and found a nice picture. OK. And the reply was slagging me off in terms I won't reply, uh, won't repeat, because yours is a family show, um, for being a gay man. And I thought, look. I mean, that's not even relevant to Sterling Moss in 1956 in Monaco, is it? Apart from being unacceptable, it's not even relevant. So they just get a block, yeah. But um, if, for instance, I tweet on behalf of Racing Pride, which I do, which is I was one of the founders of, and I'm still a founder ambassador of Racing Pride, which seeks to um, improve the, the interests and support the, uh, uh, the aspirations of LGBTQ plus people in most sport everywhere, uh, and if I tweet about that and somebody comes back with a homophobic reply, I probably do then sometimes engage. Not if it's completely and utterly, if it, if it uses unrepeatably bad words, then I'll probably just block. But sometimes I might reply. Uh, and then if they go further or come back again, then I also block. I mean, I think Twitter is a strange place because it's my favourite social media and also the one I hate with an utter passion. And, uh, you know, I, I constantly find it astonishing how people find it even tempting just to be gratuitously horrible to people they've never met before. I don't understand why they do it. And they probably think, uh, you know, it doesn't matter being horrible to him because he's, you know, 60 and he's got comparatively a few followers and... He's big enough and certainly ugly enough, enough not to give a damn. But of course, I do give a damn, really, because um, everybody does. You know, people who are very famous, you know, with millions of followers, give a damn. Nobody likes being slagged off. And of course, it's much worse for vulnerable people, for people with um, unstable uh, mental health, for youngsters, children even. Uh, and you see, you know, children with them uh, uh, with mental health issues teenagers with mental health issues getting revoltingly slagged off by nasty bullies on twitter i think it's absolutely appalling uh, i do think that the social media companies in particular twitter should do more about it i think that elon musk is um is doing whatever the opposite of the good thing is yeah. and you know i i report as well as block if somebody's very um, negative, not just to, to me, if they're negative to somebody else, I might report as well as block and I carefully go through the process and I add the context, a sentence or two. And prior to Musk, quite often they would say, you know, we have suspended the account or we've uh, blah, blah, blah. Now that's much rarer. Mostly now, unless it's absolutely repulsively offensive, Mostly now they say we have examined the case and we find nothing that has contravened our regulations. 
And there you are. I suppose the thing is, the thing is that Twitter thrives on, on conflict. By the way, when you're, uh, you check your um, mentions or your, um, what are they called? Not just mentions. There's another word for it. Anyway, um, when you check, uh, well, you know what I mean. Um, Hang on. Quotes when people quote and retweet you. Notifications. When you check your notifications and mentions, uh, and you can set your notifications. Um, or also you can set your, no, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. When you're checking, um, don't ever have it set on for you. Because for you, have it set on trending. Don't have it set on for you. Because for you, what they serve up for is not just people who you're following or things you're interested in, really. But they want you to have an argument. So if you've yeah. tweeted about um, why... Suella Braverman isn't a very nice person because of her immigration attitudes. They will serve you a whole load of people that support Nigel Farage. So you get involved in a big argument, which they want. Don't do it to yourself. Don't do it to yourself for your mental health. Follow who you follow and read who you read and try and avoid the uh, the Twitter algorithm that is trying to make you get involved in damaging and upsetting arguments. Uh, on the on on the whole uh, gay note, as a, as a gay man myself, we go to tracks that I I don't understand why we're giving them the the money, the time, the TV coverage. But I'm not contractually obliged to fly to Saudi Arabia, whereas you are. How how do you how do you handle that? How do you handle having to go to some of these countries where we're technically illegal? So. Uh, I mean, technically, I don't. I'm. I don't work for a team at the moment, but yes, no, I have had to go to Saudi Arabia for Aston Martin uh, twice, and um, but I didn't have to go this year, thank goodness. But anyway, I, I have been twice, and um, look, let's be honest. The punishment. I'm married. I'm married to my male husband, and the punishment if uh, he came with me and we made love would be, I'm not saying they'd meet it out, but technically on the statute book, the punishment is um, public beheading. So that's not something I want to risk. So obviously he has never come with me. Uh, and I'm perfectly capable of resisting having sex for five days when I go to Saudi Arabia. So <laughs> um, so it's not actually the crime to be gay. It's the, it's the crime to have gay yeah. sex. Nonetheless, it's a, it's, it's a terrible thing. Now, why do I think we should go? Why do I think we should go? I'll tell you why. Because we could, of course, completely boycott the event and say, we're never going to go. We're not going to race there. We're not going to play football there. We're not going to play golf there. We're not going to put on concerts there or comedy festivals. We're not going to do any of that. And if somebody said, that's what I think you should do, that's what I think mankind, humankind should do, I would say, I defend your view. It's up to you. And I think that's an entirely defensible view. However, my worry about doing that is that you'll never have a positive effect at all if you simply don't go at all. Whereas there is a thing called sports washing, isn't there? And let's be honest, Saudi Arabia wants Formula One and other sports to go to it. And by the way, Qatar and other places. Yep. Uh, and by the way, lots of countries aren't perfect, including the country we live in is not perfect or the United States of America, or many other places. But nonetheless, you asked me about Saudi Arabia. 
we go there to do sports washing. That's what they want us to do. So we're going to go there. And, and the world is a capitalist place and Saudi Arabia is very rich. So it's not really going to ever happen that we don't go there or that we boycott it. So what should we do? The very worst thing you could do, I think, is just turn up, check, uh, check in your principles and values when you arrive at uh, Jeddah airport, ready to be collected when you leave five days later, uh, and just be meekly um, acquiescent in everything. I think that would be a mistake. That would be ram raiding. Because really what we've done is we've gone in there, taken their money and buggered off again. That's ram raiding. I don't think we should ram raid the country. We ram raided India. We ram raided Turkey. We ram raided Malaysia because that was the Bernie Ecclestone model. Just go there, race, take the money and go. Okay. I think there is a thing called hashtag we racers one and it probably should be activated more um, uh, aggressively and powerfully uh, and compellingly than it currently is being. Uh, and perhaps it will be, but uh, again, but I think we should go there with our values and principles intact and say, look, we want to put on a great motor, motor race for you. We hope the world loves watching it. We hope your citizens love watching it. However, you know who we are. We are Westerners with comparatively liberal values. We are women who want to work we are women who want to drive. We are women who want to be treated equally with our men folk. We are LGBTQ plus people. We are people who live in sexual relationships, though we're not married, and we have children. We drink alcohol, and this is who we are. You knew who we were when you invited us. We will be respectful, but we do think there are things about the human rights in your country that could be improved. And while we're here, respectfully and politely, we're going to draw attention to it via something called hashtag We Race as One, which Formula One has uh, authorised and all the teams are signed up to. I see that as consistent with um, everything a, a visiting sport should be doing. And it's just possible, just possible, that if you do do that, you might find that you speak to the coils of the unhappiness of some of the people in that country who may feel unrepresented, perhaps posited LGBTQ plus people who are fearful and angry, and to have someone, particularly a straight um, ambassador, such as, for instance, Lewis Hamilton or Sebastian Vettel, to say, yes, I'm straight. In Seb's case, yes, I'm married. Yes, I've got three kids. But I think it's your right to love who you want to love and be who you want to be and i'm going to say that despite the fact that i'm sitting in the kingdom of saudi arabia that's why i think we should go and if we do do that it's possible that we could just move the needle in a slightly positive way wow it's very well put well said Brilliant, Matt. Matt. Well thank said. you very much thanks for joining us um that's all we've got time for we've got three seconds left um and uh, it's been brilliant. Thank you, Matt.